Uh, but this morning, I've entitled our talk, uh, All Eyes on Waco. And uh, as, we, uh, as we open the Word of God together, I invite you to bow your heads with me. And we ask God to open our hearts and our minds. So shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are a God of mysteries. But you do not leave us with mystery. You revealed mysteries to Daniel, and he praised you for it. You revealed mysteries to John the Baptist and to Zachariah and Anna in the temple when Jesus was brought as a child. Father, you are not a God who creates mysteries and then tantalizes us with them. You're a God who reveals and then invites us to search for meaning. And you've promised, Lord, that as we search, that we will find the understanding of these mysteries. And so today, Father, we live in a world where it seems on a political sphere that things are going haywire. But we affirm afresh, Father, our faith that you're on your throne. And that a sparrow does not fall to the ground, but you know about it. And so, Father, as we consider the, the principles of prophetic interpretation this morning, I ask that the same Spirit who breathed these words, uh, the, these principles through your writers in days gone by, that your same Spirit will breathe upon us afresh this morning. In the words of our hymn today, Father, guide us, O thou great Jehovah. I ask that you speak through me, Father, and for me. In the name of Jesus, I humbly ask. Amen. <clears throat> I'm sure that many of you are familiar with this image up on the screen. Uh, his name was Vernon Howell, later changed to David Koresh. And in 1993, he led a group of um, uh, believers called Branch Davidians down in, uh, just near Waco in Texas at a place called Mount Carmel Center Ranch. Now, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or the ATF, they suspected there was a stockpiling of illegal weapons, and so they obtained a search warrant, and uh, they came to the compound with arrest warrants for Koresh and some of his leaders. Well, uh, as they attempted to raid the ranch, uh, David Koresh and his fellow, uh, followers um, fought back with their weapons, and there was the death of four federal agents and six Branch Davidians. After the failure of that initial raid, there was a siege uh, lasting for 51 days, from the end of February to mid-April 1993. Um, I was growing up in England at the time, and uh, even in England, the BBC was showing daily updates of the siege of Waco. And I'm sure that many of us were watching it here in the States as well. Eventually, um, the, the FBI, they initiated a tear gas attack on, this, on the center to force the Branch Davidians out of the ranch, and during the attack, a fire engulfed Mount Carmel Center. There you have a picture of the fire. In total, 76 people died, women, men, and children, including David Koresh himself. The survivors are still around today. Some of them are still publishing on the internet, and you can find their writings on the internet. And many of them have gone back to their churches. About a half of those people came from the United Kingdom. They were not people who were, um, you might say, crazy-eyed. Many of the people at Waco were people who were earnestly seeking a deeper understanding of Scripture. And they followed someone who allegedly offered a deeper understanding of Scripture. In 1993, the eyes of the world were indeed on Waco. In 2018, it seems the eyes of the world were on the Middle East. But today, I invite you to turn your eyes to Scripture and to the God who reveals himself through those Scriptures. We're going to be talking today about eight principles of prophetic interpretation um, that uh, we can apply to the study of Daniel and Revelation. Um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not talking about my own ideas here. 
there's a, a gentleman with us today called Brother, uh, Dr. Edwin de Kock. I, I think he's somewhere in the congregation today. Um, a dear old brother in Christ. And um, as I was preparing for this, this conference, um, I, I did a lot of reading and, of course, many books weary one's eyes. Um, but these principles of interpretation really struck me, and I'd like to share them with you this morning. So I'd like to thank Dr. de Kock uh, for graciously uh, writing uh, much of this material and, and putting it together in his various books on prophetic interpretation. Uh, here he is there, Dr. de Kock. Thank you uh, for your work in this area. So um, the first principle that we're going to talk about today, there are eight of these principles, um, so, so you can kind of time me. I know that people like to kind of count down as the preacher is preaching. So there are eight principles you can count down as we're going through. Um, this, the sermon notes for this will be on Daniel11prophecy.com, Daniel11prophecy.com. It will be up there by Monday uh, if you want to take these uh, for yourself and reflect further upon them. So the first principle that we find as we, as we look at Daniel in particular and Revelation as well is this, listen to the external expositors. You see, many Bible prophecies have a dual nature. They are part prophecy and they are part explanation. And the explanation in many times in the book of Daniel comes from an angel or from a human um, that provides an explanation for the prophecy. God not only provides prophecies which include complex symbols, um, but he also provides an external expositor to tell the reader what those symbols mean. So rule one, therefore, is to take seriously the internal expositors. Now, let me give you some practical examples of this. Um, in Daniel chapter, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 40 and Genesis chapter 41 is a good example. The butler, the baker, and the pharaoh all have dreams. Remember those stories? They were pagans. God revealed himself to a pagan butler, a pagan baker, and a pagan king. But then God spoke and revealed the meaning of those dreams through Joseph to the people that had the visions. In Daniel chapter 2, we find that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and nobody could tell him the meaning of the dream until God gave the interpretation through Daniel. As Daniel himself said to Nebuchadnezzar on the screen, he said, But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. We, listen to the, we don't just worry what was the dream of Daniel 2 all about. We can actually find the interpretation within the chapter itself. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar had another dream of a mysterious tree that was cut down but not destroyed. And once again, Daniel provides the interpretation of that vision within the same chapter. The tree, says Daniel, represents Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, the seven times of verse 32 of Daniel 4 must be interpreted literally because it's talking about an individual, King Nebuchadnezzar. And we cannot interpret this as 2,520 years or so, as the Jehovah's Witnesses say, um, ending in 1914, because Daniel said that you are the tree. This is a dream about you, O King Nebuchadnezzar. So an important principle here is to listen to the external expositors. As we, go, as we go through the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall, does he not? But we're not left in darkness as to what this means. Later in Daniel chapter 5, God provides the interpretation through Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, we see four beasts coming out of the sea. And again, we are not asked, 
we're not left in the dark as to what is the meaning of these four beasts. Once again, God provides an interpretation within the text itself. In Daniel chapter 8, Daniel has a dream of a, a vision of a ram and a goat. And again, we're not left in darkness as to the interpretation. No, um, God sends uh, an angel to interpret this for the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, God instructs Gabriel to come bring understanding to Daniel of a vision that he's already received. And in Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12, which are a single unit, we find that uh, we, there was one like the Son of Man and a majestic angel. And uh, Gabriel says in Daniel 10 verse 14, I am come to make you understand. And so as we look through the book of Daniel in particular, in chapter after chapter after chapter, where there is a dream or a, or a vision, there is also an explanation given for it. And if we only look at the dreams or the visions without looking at the internal expositors, the internal interpreters, we're going to go astray in our interpretation. And so the first principle of prophetic interpretation is this, look for the internal expositor. Look for the ex explanation in the vision or the chapter itself that will often guide you into the correct interpretation, which leads us to the second principle of prophetic interpretation, which is this, to compare Scripture with Scripture. To compare Scripture with Scripture assumes that the Bible is a coherent whole, that the Holy Spirit who inspired the Word of God, uh, when, when a symbol is used in Genesis and then it appears again in Revelation, we're not left in the dark in Revelation as to how to interpret that symbol. We can compare passage with passage, Scripture with Scripture. Many modern scriptures, uh, critics of the Word of God would say to you that the Bible is not a coherent whole, it's just a random collection of random writings. But as people who accept that this is the Word of God and see the evidence in our lives, we recognize there is an internal consistency from Genesis through Revelation. And if we are uncertain of what a symbol means in one passage, we can look elsewhere in Scripture to see where that symbol is made clear. Um, you, you might say that you might express this, uh, this principle in another way, that that which is clear in Scripture can be used to interpret that which is less clear. And when there is clear light in one part of Scripture, we can use that light um, when trying to understand parts of Scripture that are less clear. It is easy to interject our own meaning into a passage. A good example is here, Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Now a great sign appeared in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head was a garland of twelve stars. And we ask ourselves, well, what was the sun? What was the moon? What were the stars in that passage? Uriah Smith wrote extensively on the book of Daniel. He wrote of the woman clothed here with the sun in Revelation 12. He argued that the sun represents the gospel era and the moon represents the Old Testament Judaism. He wrote, quote, The mosaic period shone with a light borrowed from the Christian era, even as the moon shines with light borrowed from the sun, end quote. Now, this is poetic. It's imaginative, but I believe it's actually indefensible from Scripture. If we were to compare Scripture with Scripture on this passage, the, the only other part of Scripture where we find the sun, moon, and stars together is in Joseph's dreams. And in Joseph's dreams, we have the sun, moon, and the stars bowing down to Joseph. Uh, what is the message? 
Well, yes, the, the pure woman represents the church of God, um, but she comes out of the Jewish nation and the Old Testament Judaism that gives birth to the Redeemer. Uh, there is Revelation 12:1 and 2 says that the church is the modern-day manifestation of God's God's people, going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There is a communion of faith that stretches back from Old Testament through New Testament times, and there is an essential continuity between those who walk and are faithful with God. Which leads us to the third principle. Just be consistent in your interpretation. Now, we may say this is common sense, and, and if you're raising a child, uh, you know that one of the basic principles of parenting is to be consistent with your children. Would you agree? Um, if, if you are not consistent with your children, they pick up on it really quick. Uh, I've discovered that teenagers have a sense of when something is not fair. And, if, and even if something is fair, but it's perceived as being unfair, it is unfair in the teenager's mind. And as parents, we have to make every effort to make sure that we are not only consistent in how we parent our children, but we are seen to be consistent. And we can justify and explain why we're making the decisions we are as parents. And this the principle of consistency applies also to prophetic interpretation. And it suggests that wherever possible, where a symbol means X in one book of the Bible, and it appears in another book of the Bible, unless there's a compelling reason otherwise, we interpret that symbol as X as well. That there is a consistency of interpretation among symbols. Either the books of Daniel and Revelation are a chaotic jumble of completely unrelated and random symbols, or God is a God of order. And those books have an internal harmony which allow us to interpret one passage by looking at another passage. And they are a revelation of the future and God's will for his people. Let's take a look at this in practice. In Daniel chapter 2, we're very familiar with this, uh, the, 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 the image of Daniel 2. The head of gold representing Babylon, the Medo-Persia being the arms and chest of silver. Greece is the uh, thighs of bronze. Now, I always look at these pictures because the thighs actually goes down to the kneecaps, doesn't it? Um, uh, having broken my leg last year, I'm acutely aware of the, my biology down here. Uh, and pretty much every vision, every picture we have of this statue is incorrect because the thighs come all the way down to your kneecaps almost. The legs are what happens below the kneecaps. But anyway, um, that notwithstanding, we have the legs of Rome and then the divided nations of Europe as the feet of iron and clay. Uh, this, gets, um, this is presented in further detail in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, where you have, um, first of all, you the, the lion that comes up out of the, the earth with the wings representing the Babylonian Empire. Uh, then you have the Medo-Persians represented by the bear with the three ribs. Uh, the bear is raised up on one side representing the fact that Persia was the dominant power within the Medo-Persian Empire. And the three ribs representing the conquests of Egypt, Babylonia, and uh, the, uh, Lydia, or, or the central Turkey of today. Then you, you have the Greeks, the, the four-headed leopard, and then you have uh, the fourth beast, the indescribable beast, with the ten horns upon its head. And as Adventists, we're very familiar with the interpretation of these particular beasts. But if you come through to the book of Revelation, you find in Revelation 12 and Revelation 13 and in Revelation 17, beasts with seven heads and ten horns. And if you look at this screen here, how many heads are present in, in, in the beasts of, Revela of Daniel chapter 7. How many heads do you see? There's uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. There are 7 heads. How many uh, horns are in the vision of Daniel chapter 7? Well, the only horns are here. There are 10 of them. 
And then so you have uh, seven heads and ten horns in Daniel chapter 7, which we know represents Medo-Persia, Babylon, Greece, and, uh, and the, Roman, uh, the Roman system, whether pagan or ultimately papal Rome. When you come to Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation 13 and Revelation 17, three other chapters of the Bible, you have beasts with ten heads, uh, seven heads and um, ten horns. There you have the sea beast of Revelation chapter 13. It comes out of the sea. Um, it has seven heads and ten horns. Now the horns have got crowns on them. Um, but in the vision, it has the head of a lion. It has the feet of a bear and the body of a leopard and ten, uh, seven heads and ten horns. And immediately we realize that this really is a composite of all the beasts of Daniel chapter 7. Now, if we're to be consistent in our application, in our ter interpretation, if, if the ten horns here represented the divided nations of Europe, then logically speaking, in this beast here of, of Revelation chapter um, 12, these must also represent the divided nations of Europe and so forth. And so there, you, there needs to be a consistency of interpretation as we go through, as we compare symbol with symbol. If we are not consistent in our interpretation, uh, just, just, case, just case, take this as a case of, uh, in point, we end up here with 28 heads and 40 horns. And, and if you say that these are all different, then, then you know, all bets are off in terms of prophetic interpretation. If there are 28 heads and 40 horns, all of which require a separate historical actor, this leads you to an infinite number of possible interpretations, which is confusing. Uh, we look again at Revelation chapter 17. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having again seven heads and ten horns. And so once again, we have the seven heads and ten horns appearing in the book of Revelation. And so if we are to be consistent in our application or interpretation, we must look back to Daniel to see what was Daniel speaking about when he spoke of ten horns and seven heads. And we know in the book of Revelation that there are three major opponents of the lamb. There's the dragon, there's the leopard-like beast, and there's the two-horned beast. We know this because in Revelation 20, those are the three beasts that end up in the sea of fire at the end of time. So therefore, this beast of Revelation 17 must correspond with one of those ultimate three beasts that end up in the sea of fire in Revelation chapter 20. The basic point here is this. We must be consistent when applying symbols across different passages of Scripture. If we are not consistent, we end up with an, literally an infinite number of possible interpretations. And then your guess is as good as mine as to what an individual passage might mean. Which leads us to the fourth principle of prophetic interpretation, and it is this, recognize prophetic augmentation. See, visions in Daniel from 2 to 7 to 8 to 9 through 10 through 12, they basically cover the same time period in history, but they are never identical in the details. Later visions include differences of emphasis. They include additional details uh, that you do not find in the early visions, particularly the vision of Daniel 2. In the process, the symbols of Daniel may remain the same, or Daniel may expand or modify them, but the interpretation itself remains consistent. Uh, this, is, uh, this is akin to a marriage. I'm not saying that marriage is two beasts, but 
Uh, I, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting is that when you're dating, you get, that's like Daniel 2, that's the outline prophecy. You've got a general idea of who you're going to marry. But after 20 years of marriage, that's like the beasts of Daniel 7. You, you've actually, you actually see, you have a much richer picture of the beast with whom you're married, all right? Um, you know whether they have 10 horns or 7 heads or psychotic or psychosis or things like this. So uh, you understand my point, yes? As you go through time in marriage, your understanding of, of your, your spouse is much richer. You, there's much more nuance to the picture. Things that you didn't know in your dating time, you now understand after 20 years of marriage. It is the same with the prophecies of Daniel, that there are basic outline prophecies at the beginning, two, and then seven is kind of an outline prophecy. But then as you go through eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12, a lot more detail is added. And the additional detail that's added doesn't disqualify or discredit that which went before. It simply enriches our understanding of what went before. And so there is this principle of um, uh, prophetic augmentation. Once again, uh, we come back to Daniel chapter 2, where again we're familiar with this. Uh, And then you have in Daniel chapter 7, you have a lot more detail added as as to these individual nations. Um, In Daniel chapter 2, Greece is represented by the thighs of bronze. It doesn't tell you much about the Greek Empire. But by the time you come to Daniel 7, you know that it, its conquests are rapid because there's the wings of an eagle. Uh, you know that it has four heads, so the, uh, the empire is ultimately going to divide into four after the death of Alexander. It's a good example of prophetic augmentation in practice. Daniel 8 provides more details of how the little horn from Daniel 7 persecutes God's people and opposes the heavenly sanctuary ministry of the Messiah Prince. Daniel 10 through 12 is a further explanation of the vision of Daniel 8, expanding on the activities and final fate of the actors of Daniel, the vision of Daniel chapter 8. Recognizing prophetic augmentation is crucially important as we study the books of Daniel and Revelation because it necessitates a realization that the visions of Daniel and Revelation should be studied together. You cannot study one without the other. The the two of them fit hand in hand hand like, like two gloves going together. They are not a series of disconnected snapshots, but a connected film of interrelated sequences. There are alternative schools of prophetic interpretation, such as futurism and praetorism. They fail to recognize this principle of the interrelated nature of Daniel and Revelation, and thus they fall far short in their interpretations of these two books. And so the fourth principle is this. Recognize prophetic augmentation when you see it. Additional detail in later visions does not disqualify the earlier visions. It's simply giving you a richer picture of what you've seen before. The fifth principle is this, to seek historical accurateness, correctness, and that's a terrible word, isn't it? Accurateness? Is there such a word as accurateness? Okay, Um, I should be accurate to my English language here. So seek historical correctness and accuracy. Simply put, the predictions of Scripture should be measured against historical events. But you may ask yourselves, whose history are we talking about? Whose history are we to assess Scripture against? Can we be truly objective in our study of history? At what point do objective facts merge into a subjective interpretation of those facts? When Sir Isaac Newton, here he is here, um, when he wrote his book called His Chronology of Ancient Kingdoms in 1728, uh, there you have the date down there, 1728, uh, quite a while ago, almost 300 years ago, he was working from the Bible and the works of classical Roman and Greek antiquity. Uh, so over 100 years later, we have A.T. Jones, 
And in the, uh, when he wrote his Empires of the Bible in the late 1800s, which is a magnificent three-volume series on the Assyrian Empire, uh, the four re- re- empires of Daniel 2, and then the, the ecclesiastical empire, that is the Roman Catholic Church, when he wrote in the late 1800s, he had access to far greater historical knowledge um, than Sir Isaac Newton. But we have grown since then. In the 21st century, we are witnessing an explosion of understanding an explosion of knowledge. Knowledge is increasing rapidly as we speak. And, and so modern scholars, are, they, they can stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before, but we have much greater understanding of what actually happened in the past. And we face the temptation, all of us, um, to, to twist history to suit our current needs. We do this in relationships. This is what you did last year. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. You did that before. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. We have this tendency to twist the facts to meet our own personal needs. And uh, historians, even in in church history, um, fall prey to this particular temptation. Uh, In particular, uh, clerics within the Catholic Church, we know from history, have been particularly prone to perverting or obscuring the facts, and at times deliberately falsifying them. We'll come to some specific examples in a moment. Zealous to promote the interests of the papacy, and no doubt for the greater glory of God, Clerics have resorted to blatant forgeries, such as the donation of Constantine and the decretals of Pseudo-Isidorine. Refraining from similar and shameful abuse of history should be one of our goals in prophetic interpretation. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was a student at Newbold, I, um, I studied the writings, the teachings of David Koresh at some length. I was going to write a dissertation on it. And the thing that struck me about his interpretation of Scripture uh, was, was a, a definite skewing of history to, to fit a certain narrative. And uh, those who listened to him maybe were not picking up on this, but with the hindsight of history, we can realize this is what he was doing. Which leads us to the next point, which is to avoid history as forgery. Now, we hear a lot these days about fake news, don't we? But fake news is nothing new. Um, back in the early 1700s, uh, the Germans invented the phrase, er lugt wie gedruckt, which means he lies as though it were printed. Uh, with the invention of printing, with the Gutenberg's printing press, uh, people were not just printing truth, but they were printing fake news back in the early 1700s. And this phrase came into the German language in the early 1700s because over 300 years ago, people recognized that just because it's print, print doesn't mean it's necessarily the truth. Um, Nothing can deceive like a document. Fake news truly is nothing new. We see this throughout history. Here's a a picture of Ramesses II, known as Ramesses the Great, who lived in the late 1200s BC. He used to boast about his military victories. His greatest battle was against the Hittites of Turkey, but it ended in a draw. It was a stalemate. But Ramesses comes back to Egypt, and he boasts about the, the battle as though it were a great victory. And of course, people in Egypt, most of them hadn't been there. They didn't know. They accepted this as a great victory. Sennacherib, the next, uh, another good example of viewing history as forgery, um, he went on, on a, a rampage of conquest across the Middle East. He comes down to the, the kingdom of Judah in the time of Hezekiah. He takes most of the cities of Judah, but um, he doesn't take Jerusalem. Remember the story where he was encamped around Jerusalem and uh, the angel Lord came down that night and slew 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. Well, Sennacherib records that event, but he doesn't say, he doesn't describe it how it's recorded in the Bible. What he says was, and I quote, he says, Hezekiah was a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence like a bird in a cage. 
Well, that's one way to describe what happened that night down at Jerusalem where he lost 185,000 of his soldiers in one night. Uh, you might say that was truly history as forgery or fake news. Here's uh, another famous example of fake news in church history, Eusebius. I think pretty much every student at Andrews, if you're in the seminary, reads Eusebius. He is one of the standard textbooks of early church history. But uh, why did he write what he wrote? Well, he wrote because he wanted to emphasize the legitimacy of a church led by monarchical bishops, including the one from Rome. And so he skews early church history to, make, to, to justify um, and to legitimize the onset of the early papacy through the bishops of Rome. For many years, the papacy used a number of documents, such as a donation of Constantine, to assert its legal right to civil dominion of Western Europe. This was included in a document called the Decretals of Pseudo Isidori. This is from the 9th century AD, and it's a collection of fictional accounts of early church councils, most of them fictional, they never happened, from the first seven centuries of church history to assert and buttress the power of the papacy. These documents were in circulation in Western Europe for centuries, and they were complete frauds. History truly was um, uh, fake uh, for these historians. Uh, here's the, on the donation of Constantine, uh, Lorenzo Valla there. You can read it online. Um, you can still get it. This is a very famous British historian. He was a Catholic. He lived in the late um, 1800s in the Victorian era. His advice to persons about to write history is very simple. Don't. Apologies to any history teachers present here this morning. Um, don't write about history. Now, uh, Lord Acton was uh, a very famous historian, and he recognized the tendency, even among Christians, to use history as forgery to justify your intentions today. And uh, he was the guy who co coined those famous words, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is the guy that came up with that phrase. And what was he talking about when he, dis when he made this phrase? Well, there was a book came out in England in the late 1800s about the Renaissance popes. And it kind of um, painted them in this glorious light. There was not a word about, um, there was not a word about the murder. There's not a word about bribing people to become the pope. There's not a word about the Borgias. Uh, there was not a word about the popes having multiple mistresses and illegitimate children, and then their children becoming popes, and so forth, and so forth. He recognized this guy here, Lord Acton, though he was a Catholic, he recognized that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Whenever we quote that phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely, we're actually quoting a Catholic historian who's criticizing other Catholics for whitewashing the history of the papacy. He opposed the doctrine of papal infallacy, and, uh, which causes huge problems for the papacy today. So how right was Sir Walter Scott when he first wrote, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. So perverted history is a serious problem for prophetic interpreters. Truth is often the first casualty of war and also of historical writings. It lies as if it were printed, say the Germans, and alas, it especially lies of clerics when they are involved in the writing of history. So if the Bible's predictions are to be measured against current event, past events as well as current events, then we need to be scrupulously honest with how we review history and our understanding of history, which leads us to our seventh principle, is to avoid the trap 
of the contemporary. And this is a problem in prophetic interpretation that goes back to time immemorial. Sometimes a writer will notice a superficial resemblance between what is happening in the news today and a certain event within the scripture. And they rush to produce a book, or these days they put up a website that looks exciting and is certain to impress certain types of readers. However, when subsequent history turns out differently and defies expectations, the writer is caught in the trap of the contemporary. Mockery and embarrassment follow. Avoiding this trap is another sound principle. Let me give you some examples of this. Throughout history, interpreters have argued that Adolf Hitler, Jimmy Carter, and even Henry Kissinger have been manifestations of Antichrist. The dispensationalist writer Hal Lindsey argued that the world would end within two generations of the establishment of the State of Israel. 1988 came and went, and we are still here today. When Napoleon Bonaparte was rampaging across Europe, an English biblical and prophetic interpreter called Samuel Tuvey argued that Napoleon was the two-horned beast of Revelation 13. He tried to find 666 in the name Napoleon Bonaparte. Inconveniently for him, Napoleon was exiled by the British to the South Atlantic where he died. And so the two-horned beast of Revelation, that particular interpretation didn't go very far. The truth is that very, very few individuals have made it into specific prophecies in Scripture. In fact, there are three primary individuals, other than Jesus Christ, who've made their way into, into eschatological prophecy. The first is Cyrus the Great in Isaiah chapter 45. The second is Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. And the third is Alexander the Great in Daniel chapter 8. The reason for singling out these three individuals in prophetic interpretation is they are synonymous with the empires which they founded and for the impact they had on God's people in their era. And we would avoid a lot of embarrassment today if we were a little more cautious in avoiding the temptation to say that contemporary events are direct fulfillment of Bible prophecies. Which leads us to our eighth and final principle prophetic interpretation is to respect the previous interpreters. Those who write today must be aware of those who wrote yesterday, in the last century and in the last millennium. We can learn as Adventists today from the writings of intellectual giants such as Martin Luther, a Lutheran, Charles Wesley, a Wesleyan, uh, Sir Isaac Newton, an Anglican, Uriah Smith, an Adventist, and Leroy Edwin Froome. There are giants of prophetic interpretation. As we did our study group here in this church on Daniel 11 over the last six weeks, we realized that there were people like Manuel Lacunza, that there were Jesuits in the past who made crucial discoveries in prophetic interpretation, such as the year-day principle in the mid-1260s, that we rely on today. And so it's important for us to understand that we, we, we stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before. Some of them were Adventists, but most of them were not. If you imagine the Christian world as a tree, Judaism is the roots, and the split between Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant are the three boughs of the tree, we are a small twig on a minor branch. And some humility in our prophetic interpretation is called for, and we recognize that we stand on the shoulders of those who go before. Peter wrote this. He said, no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. This means that throughout salvation history, God has blessed his church with those who may interpret prophecy within the body of Christ. God gave us prophecy that, so that we might know and also be blessed in the search for understanding. The symbols of prophecy are difficult to understand, but they're not unintelligible. Um, and those who have a desire to serve God and love for him, they will seek to understand him. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 45, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a, searchant, a merchant who was searching for a pearl. 
And we always assume that the kingdom of God is the pearl. But Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a merchant in search of the pearl. And so the process of searching for understanding uh, involves me leaving yesterday's understandings behind, maybe admitting where I was wrong and seeking to grow my understanding. Uh, To be in search of that pearl of understanding is to recognize I don't have all the answers today, that I need to move from where I am today to another understanding tomorrow. I need to grow and deepen and broaden in my understanding. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a merchant in search of a pearl of great price, he's inviting us to a life of continual study and continual growth. He's inviting us to be different in the evening to those who raised God up in the morning, that we've grown in our understanding, that we've shed our prejudices or our biases or or our lack of understanding of the morning, and that we've grown closer to Christ spiritually, and we've grown closer to God in our understanding of his word. The kingdom of God is like a merchant in search of a pearl. Uh, Jesus is calling us to a faithful study of Scripture day by day because in the process of searching, we leave where God does not want us to be and we go closer to his kingdom itself. So what do we say in conclusion today? Let's come back to Waco. Uh, when, I was, uh, back in, when I was back in England, uh, Newbold, doing my uh, dissertation at Newbold, um, I knew that there were Adventists in Britain who had been at Waco uh, they still go to churches in Britain, and uh, some of them still bear the scars physically and psychologically of the tragedy of Waco. And so I wanted to understand why did David Koresh interpret the Bible the way that he did? So I spent three months of time, and that's a lot of time, studying the, the, the videos and the writings of David Koresh. I learned his history, I learned his life story, I learned the churches where he'd been, what he'd been saying, the videos he'd been putting out, uh, who his lieutenants were, the mighty men that he called them. Um, I learned an awful lot about David Koresh. And at the end of three months, I, I realized that, that I was going down a cul-de-sac theologically, that there's, there's no light in this cul-de-sac. Um, that's, to, that's to mix metaphors, isn't it? But there, there, this cul-de-sac was going nowhere. And so I, I put the study of Koresh to one side, and I had another three months to knock out my dissertation. So I went to the library at Newball College, and I sat down for three months, and I banged out a paper. Uh, I don't know, like 30,000 words or something. Uh, so I banged out another paper, and I thought, what a waste of time studying the writings of David Koresh. That was in summer 2014. Um, December 2014, there was the tsunami in Southeast Asia. Do you remember that? They called the, the Southeast Asian tsunami. And um, I was lying in bed on Boxing Day, that's the day after Christmas, like a, a python after a big meal. And uh, I was feeling somewhat, somewhat bloated. Um, I was due to start in, in a church in London on the 1st of January. And I just handed in my dissertation. And I got a call that said, oh, um, the division wants you to go out to um, Indonesia and lead ADRA's response for six months. And I said, have you checked with my conference? And they said, yeah, they've released you, and we'd like you to go today to the airport and fly out. So uh, I, I drove to Heathrow Airport, and I went to the check-in desk, and they gave me some tickets, and the tickets said Colombo. And I said, uh, I thought I was going to Indonesia. That would be Jakarta. But my tickets are for Colombo. Why am I going to Colombo? And they said, well, that, that's the ticket you have. So I, I figured somebody must know what they're doing here. So um, it's like the guy who flew to Grenada and ended up in Granada, Yes. Uh, so uh, uh, you kind of wonder, was, is he, flew, he flew from New York, to, to, he landed in London, and then he was flown down to the south of Spain, and, and nowhere on the journey did he realize, looking at the maps on the plane, uh, I'm on the wrong continent here, you know? 
It's an astonishing story. Anyway, I got on the plane, went to Colombo, was there for six months leading a Padre's response. I came back, and uh, I was asked by the BBC radio service in London to an interview on breakfast radio on a Sunday morning. And ostensibly, this was the topic. We want you to talk about what it's like to be an aid worker after the tsunami, which is an interesting topic. And so I went in at early Sunday morning, and I was going to speak about being an aid worker. As I sat there, the first question live on breakfast radio was this. We know that you studied at Newbold, and the wacko from Waco, David Koresh, he was at Newbold. Could you explain to us the relationship between Newbold College and David Koresh? Just out of the blue. At that moment, I just, this, 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 this thought flashed across my mind. Thank you, Lord. The last year I spent three months boning up on this guy, on his history, on his theology, on exactly his relationship with the church when he was disfellowshipped. And I gave her a five-minute answer, like a mini like an um, Encyclopedia Britannica answer, I ran through the facts, at the end of which the, the host said, well, thank you very much, we'll move on to the next question, shall we? <laughs> and um, I kind of figured this was a kind of a trap, live on breakfast radio, to see uh, how am I going to answer this one. But the point is this, um, when you study prophecy, it's never wasted. You may think when you study prophecy that you haven't come to a full understanding but you don't know when you're going to have to answer for your faith one day. You don't know when somebody's going to ask you a question about why do you believe what you believe. You don't know when somebody's going to ask you, does the Bible have anything to say about the crises we're going through in our world today? We may not come to the full understanding in 2018 of Daniel 11. Probably not. But as we search for understanding, God grows us and he matures us so that when we are asked to defend our faith, we can give a mature and a responsible answer. And we're not going to be caught short. We can indeed glorify God in our answers, and that we come across as Christians, not as mindless lemmings, but as people who have an intelligent faith, who use our brains and think as we, as we worship our Heavenly Father. So I want to cl- conclude with uh, the prayer of Daniel chapter 2. And I'm going to paraphrase the last two sentences of that prayer. It says this, Blessed be the name of God from age to age. This is Daniel praising God for revealing the mystery of the dream, the vision of Nebuchadnezzar to him. Blessed be the name of God from age to age, for wisdom and power are yours. You change times and seasons. You depose kings and you set up kings. You give wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. You reveal deep and hidden things. You know what is in the darkness, and light dwells with you. To you, O God of my ancestors, we give thanks and praise. Now the paraphrase comes in. For you alone give wisdom and power, and we humbly ask that you reveal to us what we ask of you a fuller understanding of the open scroll of Daniel 11, and the boldness to share your last offer of mercy with our dying world. It's my prayer that God will indeed, as we search for understanding, as the merchant searched for that pearl, that God will grant us an understanding of his prophecies of Daniel 11 and 12, that our witness will burn brighter, that our love will be deeper, our faith will be stronger, and that more people will enter the kingdom of God through our living witness as God's representatives on earth in earth's last and dying days. May God bless us as we live, as we study, and as we witness for his name's sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.